0: listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. God doesn't want us to respond to his authority like the demon in this story. But very often we do. When we hear his word in a sermon, Sometimes when we come across his commands in scripture, sometimes when he reminds us of a lesson he's taught us a long time ago, sometimes when he's warning us away from temptation, sometimes even when we hear the gospel for the first time, we find ourselves, first of all, desperately transfixed on something we want to avoid, his word. Then saying either to ourselves or to other people or challenging God, I don't see what that's got to do with me. And finally, Sometimes convulsing and screaming, maybe not outwardly, but in our spirit, convulsing and screamingly, we finally do what we're told. God's word is compelling enough to do that, isn't it? God even works through us like that when we speak his word to other people sometimes. But even though we, sometimes we need that word of power to set us free from demons. That was a demon. It wasn't a guy with a psychiatric condition. He was possessed. And that still happens today. We need his word to release people like that. We need his word to speak into power to free us from sin in the first place, to save us. Ultimately, that's not the type of obedience that God wants from us. And that's really the point of the passage, certainly the point I believe God would speak to us uh, this morning through his word. He wants to contrast the compelled obedience the forced obedience to the demon with the obedience that we are called to as his children so i'm just going to try and unpack that a little bit from from the passage on the surface this passage that mark is presenting us with is about authority we've talked last time about how mark edits his story he he misses a lot of stuff out that the other gospel writers include but he does that for a reason he wants to focus us on particular aspects of his story about Jesus and here he wants us to focus us on the issue of Jesus authority he's almost taken everything else out of the story I'll try and illustrate what I mean by that for you so firstly if we take the confrontation with the demon it's very very dramatic even as I'm reading it can you imagine being in church one day and someone's preaching and a demon-possessed person starts speaking, like in, not in their own voice, you know, and then gee imagine Jesus commanding it to come out and this convulsion, this shriek, out it comes. But there's there's some stuff hidden in there that reveals that this is about authority. The demon actually, although he seems very subservient, there's some subtle stuff going on in the background that actually shows he's almost challenging Jesus to a fight. So first of all, that phrase, what have you got to do with us? He says, What have you got to do with us? is kind of technical language. It's basically kind of demon speak for come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. it's, It's a technical term. Uh, for for go away, we we don't want to have anything to do with you. But also there's a hint here that when he calls him the Holy One of God, he's not just recognising that Jesus is the Messiah. The only other place we see that exact title in the Bible is in the story of Samson, who's also called the Holy One of God. Here's someone who thinks they're strong, who's going to get rid of all the enemies in the land. And the, the demon is kind of mocking Jesus. Jesus the, Naz- the Nazarite sounds a lot like Samson the Nazarite. And it's two different words, but they sound very similar in in Greek. So he's basically saying, you think you're like Samson. You think you're going to come here and kick me out. Come on then. And unlike every other exorcism these guys have ever seen, Jesus just goes, go. No technical language, no sweat, no hours of prayer, nothing. No formulas, just get out. And he's gone. So Mark is showing us Jesus' authority. And the word Jesus uses, actually, it's, it's not terribly well, um, described in the NIV. It says Jesus said sternly. That's a real understatement of the word as well. The word that, um, Jesus uses, the way that that sternly word is actually the same word in Greek as in the Old Testament, uh, translated into Greek is, uh, the word that the psalmist used to describe God's rebuke of the waters when he made, when he created the world. And when he parted the Red Sea, he rebuked the waters. And he uses exactly the same word again to highlight Jesus' authority. And then to make the point really clearly that Jesus is not just a powerful teacher, not just a little bit stronger than everybody else, but he is actually speaking with God's authority. Because why? Because he's God. So he's zooming us in on authority. There's another aspect to this, this focus on authority as well. It's his reference to his teaching authority. Jesus teaches authority. With authority, not like the scribes, not like uh, those uh, the teachers of the law. What's this? Uh, what's this um, comparison that's being made here? In the minds of uh, the Jewish people, there was this expectation that one day there would come along a teacher who was greater than Moses. Now, Moses was the teacher of the law par excellence. You know, he was just—he was the the highest standard. And every other teacher who would teach in the Jewish synagogue would reference um, his dependence, ultimately on Moses, but on teachers down through the centuries who depended on Moses. So if I stood up as a person teaching in the synagogue, I would say, I think this passage means such and such. And the reason I think that is because Martin Lloyd-Jones preached it. And the reason he thought it is because he read it in the Puritans. And the reason they thought it is because they read it in Calvin. And Calvin thought it because Augustine thought it. And Augustine thought it because Irenaeus thought it. And Irenaeus thought it, Irenaeus thought it because... John thought it, and John was one of the disciples, and Jesus said it. So my authority would depend on all these other people. And the scribes teaching in the, in the synagogues, the, the teachers of law in the synagogues, would do exactly the same thing. And so their authority came from their uh, provenance, if you like, where they got their teaching from. But Jesus' teaching isn't like that. It carries this weight all of its own. He is better than Moses. Moses' authority came from the fact that he was up on a mountain with God for 40 days and God inscribed on a tablet with his own hand the Ten Commandments. But Moses, God didn't put his words in Moses' mouth. He made him carry in So even Moses, although a great teacher as he was, didn't have his own authority. His authority came from his encounter on the mountaintop. Jesus carries an even greater authority than that. He speaks the very words of God. Now why is this important? Because that expectation that there was going to be one greater than Moses comes from a promise that God made to Moses uh, towards the end of his life as they approached the promised land. And I'm, I'm just going to read to you from Deuteronomy 18) Jesus, told 18, eighteen fifteen. The Lord your God will raise up for you. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Sorry, this is Moses speaking to people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And verse 18, this is God speaking. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from their brothers. So there's this authority that Jesus is teaching. That's so, do you see that's what Mark is honing us in on? Zeroing us in on the authority of Jesus. Okay. And we could do all sorts of interesting things about the authority of Jesus and how cool that is. Like when we're, you know, preaching and it has the power to, you know, call out sin, has the power to, when we preach his word, has the power to set people free from the demonic, all sorts of things, to call people to salvation and so on. But there's another subtle point here as well. It's If we look at that passage in g 20, if you've still got your uh, Bible open, I forgot to put my finger in it, so I'm going to have to turn to it again. Painstakingly. Oh, no, no, there we go. <laughs> if you look at the reasons, you look, read from um, uh, verse 16, why did God say that he was going to send someone like Moses to speak his words? Why? This is the, this is the key question for our passage today. It says in verse um, 16, after Moses has told them that he's going to raise up this prophet, he says to them, this is what you asked of the Lord, your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. They'd seen God in the wilderness on the top of Mount Sinai, and it was scary. They were so overawed by his presence. The thunder, the lightning, the fire, the holiness, the warning about not touching, um, the base of the mountain. You know, God was close to them, but he was close to them in a way that they, they couldn't comprehend him. And actually, if you think about the effect it had on them, it had a really weird effect on the Israelites, didn't it? Did they go, Oh God, you're so great. We'll do whatever you say. Actually, they did say that. Did they do it? No, they didn't. They kept. They hardened their heart. They rebelled in all sorts of weird ways. They didn't love God, this God who'd saved them out of, out of Egypt. They hadn't fallen in love with him, which is a great phrase that Nick used a minute ago for the kids. They hadn't fallen in love with him at all. They were absolutely scared stiff <laughs> of him. But God didn't want a people who were just scared of him. They didn't want a people who feared him in that raw way. They didn't want a people who just obeyed him because he was bigger and stronger than them, because he could part the Red Sea and kill all the Egyptians, the thunder from a mountain, and write things on stone. He didn't want people who obeyed him because of his raw power. He wanted a people who loved him, who worked freely alongside him, who, like like a wife to a husband, became a partner for him in his mission in the world. God's plan was to bring his love and his Beauty, his grace, into the whole world through the people of Israel. He didn't want them to be servants scurrying here and there, obeying his commands like slaves. He wanted them to understand who he was so that they could fill their lives with his goodness, fill their culture, their society with his beauty, and draw people to him. He wanted a people like him, gracious and just and good and kind and patient and all those things. He wanted the people he would share in his life and communicate his glory to the world. Power and love, power and freedom don't go together very easily. If you look at this scandal that seems to be going on for a month or two now in Hollywood about the abuse that's going on, especially towards actresses by powerful men, often what's going on there is these men... They either don't consciously realise, or maybe they do, and they're using their power and influence to make people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. We don't need to go into the details, but the problem with power is it can compel people to do things that then later on they go, "Oh, you know, I, I was, what was I thinking?" God isn't interested in that powerful coercive relationship with us, but when you're the most when you are power itself, how do you, how can you have a, how can you, it welcome people into a free relationship with you? How can you get people to love you, even though you could blot them out in a second? Or power and love don't go together. So God agrees to speak to them in a way that they understand, and in a way, most importantly, that they can respond to freely in a way that they can respond to freely. So instead of cowering at the bottom of Sinai and all the weird stuff that came out of that, they see God for who he really is. So he says he's going to speak to them as one of them. Jesus is that one. Jesus comes as one of them, a brother. Not in the center of Israel, not in Jerusalem, not standing in the temple. If you think about it, if Mark's point had been, look how powerful and authoritative Jesus is, if that's what he wanted to tell us right at the beginning of his gospel, he had lots of better examples to give us, didn't he? The clearing of the temple, for example. When the Pharisees and the scribes are all standing around, like not knowing what to do, because everybody is crowding around to hear him. Here we are in Capernaum, the the house of fish, the the fisher town, basically. With a bunch of fishermen, they're not exactly the most discerning crowd. In the, you know, just at a chapel in Turner's Hill, it might as well be. In the middle of nowhere, he's standing up as their brother. So his point isn't his absolute authority, it's this gracious authority. But it's the perfect setting to make this point. Jesus displays God's absolute authority in a new way to enable God's people to respond freely to it. You see that from the passage? I hope you can see it. Okay. So there's a, there's, a doct- there's a doctrine, there's a piece of teaching right at the heart of all this that's really, really important. What we see is that God actually goes to extraordinary lengths to enable us to respond to his authority. Not because we are made to, forced to, like that demon was, but freely. In fact, I would say, without going into too deep it too deeply, it is one of God's greatest miracles, if not the greatest, to create us with freedom and enable us to respond freely to him. And we could trace that theme, not just in this passage, but through the, the whole of the Bible, from the Garden of Eden, where God gives Adam and Eve an extraordinary freedom, doesn't he? You may not, but he actually doesn't stop them. You may not eat from the fruit, but he doesn't actually stop them. He requires a free response from them. Right through from uh, Genesis, right through to the wedding at Revelation where a bride and a groom are getting married. That's that's a, a, a symbol of freedom in relationship. You can't get married if you're coerced into it. We can see it in the way we experience the world around us. It's a great answer to things like the problem of suffering and so on. Even in this message, there is this Um, In that passage in Deuteronomy, it finishes in a really interesting way. It says, "They they should listen to him, but anyone who speaks presumptuously should be put to death. Even in the message of the cross, there's this ambiguity that enables us to look at the cross and say, well, was Jesus sent by God, or was he punished by God? And we actually have to look at what was going on there to answer that question. Why is this freedom so important? It's because, God, because of what God made us for. Israel, like we say, is a picture of it, like a, a bride for God. They, he wanted to, to, them to be companions in his mission in the world. But like Israel, he made us, each of us individually, for relationship with him. He made us so that we could share fully in his love. He made us not servants, but children to know his love for us, to love him fully in return, and to love like him, to have, to have communion with him. That's what makes us human beings unique in the whole of creation. That's why God became a man. This demon in this story has to obey Jesus. It seems from what everything we can tell that angels and demons all ultimately, in the end, are compelled to obey God. The galaxies, the stars, and the planets, compelled to obey God. The weather systems, the mountains, the trees, the seas, compelled to obey God. The fox in his hole, the bird in his nest, compelled to obey God. The cleverest dolphin, the highest primate, compelled to obey God. Only we are free to refuse him. Because only we are freely made to. Have communion with him. C.S. Lewis says this about it. Free will is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared to which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, we've got to be free, he says. Only freedom can produce genuine love and thus create communion between us and God. We see that fleshed out a little bit, even in um, our everyday experience. You can picture the scene very easily without having to picture it being my kids, two children (laughs) squabbling, fighting endlessly, you know, for however long it is. And the mother f- finally sees them and intervenes, and a series of accusations follow. He started it, but, oh, but she did this, but he did that first. And the mum finally says, look, I want you to say sorry to each other. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. Compelled obedience. Being made to say sorry, being made to do anything, doesn't mean anything. It, all it produces is outward, immediate, tiny little bit of... of. Uh, Conformity—it's the—it's a bare surface thing. There's no relationship that emerges from it. There's no possibility of relationship. There's no feeling in it. There's no affection in it. There's no inward transformation by it. There's no outward fruitfulness. There's no momentum for the future. It doesn't create anything in the future. Just a bare result. Right now, in this one single instance, they did what they were made to do. Get out, Jesus said to the demon, and he did it, shrieking, convulsing. Compare that to when a child is truly sorry. The quaking and the shuddering and the tears and the snot. Or when a child spontaneously obeys you, does something you haven't asked them, you know, they know you want them to do, but you haven't actually asked them. The joy that you feel, the pride that wells up. It's full, isn't it? It's, it's substantial. That free obedience creates something bigger than itself. It's, it's full of life. It changes the child. It gives joy to the parents. It communicates compassion. It engenders peace. It opens up possibilities for the future. It's full of life. That's just a little picture in our experience of the difference between compelled obedience to God and obedience that arises freely towards him. When we obey God freely, not because we have to, it creates this full of life, communion with him. We are filled with his spirit. We know his joy in us. We, his peace comes to dwell in us. We're transformed. We become more aware of his love for us. We see him more clearly. We actually find ourselves loving him more. Life is flowing into us. We're changed inside. Our minds are transformed and filled with truth. Goodness flows from us in the fruit of the Spirit, out from us. Possibilities for the future open up. When we obey him freely from love, love itself in all its fullness is poured into us. You see why freedom is so important? What do we do with this understanding? We can say uh, a lot about it, and it's good just to have that in our minds, just to reflect on it. But I want to suggest two kind of big applications for us today. But I think actually I've got I feel it's laid on my heart to bring to you. So, firstly, we need we need to know how to find this freedom, on what this freedom rests, and to do that, we have to. Listen to Jesus, the one who speaks with authority, but the one that we can hear, the one who unveils God to us. That's why God raised up this prophet greater than Moses, so that we wouldn't be overawed by his authority, but we can actually hear what God is saying. The thunder of Sinai, incomprehensible to the Israelites, becomes the voice of Jesus, so that we can listen and obey. And at the center of everything that Jesus says, of course, stands the cross. Where, when we deserved nothing, God gave his only son. Giving himself completely. Taking our sin upon himself. So that we could have his love, become his children and have eternal life. The cross sets us, as a central thing that Jesus says, sets us free to obey him. Firstly, because it tells us that God is for us, indisputably, unarguably, on our side. And that's the foundation of freedom. (laughs) He is absolutely unreservedly on our side. Paul writes in Romans 8, He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So when God commands us to do something, we know that he is absolutely trustworthy because he's already given us everything. I'll explain what I mean by that. If someone gave you a million pounds to keep it, you know, tax-free, goes in the bank, right? Next week, they say, oh, and would you like to come out for dinner with me? Money's in the bank, right? You're going out for dinner. You get there, it's my treat, sit down, you have dinner with the person, you know, and then at the end of the night, the bill comes, and he says, oh, I've got this, and then he does the old, pats his pocket. <laughs> I have forgot my wallet. Could you get this one? I'll pay you back. Would you believe him? I hope so. God, I have a nod at least. <laughs> what what possible reason could a person who's given you a million pounds have to lie to you that they would pay you back for a meal that they offered to give you? So in the same way, when God commands us to do something, in our, on our first instinct, for whatever reason is, oh, I don't really want to do that, or I don't think that's a good idea. When we read something in the Bible or we hear something in a sermon, it's a command that we're struggling to obey. God says, I've already given you my son. Why would I command you to do something that's bad for you? It's the foundation of our freedom. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe there's something that you're struggling with, some area of obedience that you just can't understand. You know what the Bible says, or you know what I've said it says, <laughs> or you know what other Christians say it means, and you're struggling to think, well, what, why is that good? God isn't trying to rip you off. So through the cross, he, he makes his covenant with us. He says, I'm absolutely trustworthy. I'm absolutely committed to you, to sharing all my goodness with you. I never intend you any harm, but I will always and without limit bless you. I will never withhold any good thing from you. That's one, one of our foundations of freedom. We're still on the first application, but there's kind of three little points in here. So we know that he's trustworthy. But also God at the cross frees us to see the purpose of his authority. At the cross, God beckons us in to the the holy of holies. To see his glory. To gaze on what the Bible says, the seraphim around his throne. They cover their eyes, they can't look at it. God unveils it before us at the cross and says, this is who I am. See the beauty of divine love. See the beauty of the one, Jesus, the King of kings, who having all authority in heaven on earth, having absolute power and every right to command you to do whatever he wants, pours out his life for you. Taking your guilt and your shame and your punishment in order to forgive you and heal you and bless you and perfect you. This self-giving, other-blessing love is life itself. The source of everything that's good. It's who God is. It's the ground of peace, the wellspring of joy. It's the substance of, of righteousness. It's what it's made of. It's compelling not by force, but because it's beautiful, isn't it? This this event, the crucifixion of the Son of God, at which the the whole earth, when we killed the Son of God, the whole earth should have stopped spinning and exploded or something. This crucifixion. We're not compelled to kneel before it. We can spit upon it. We can laugh at it. We can gamble in front of it. But when we respond freely to it, it brings a new type of authority. A beautiful authority. A love so amazing, so divine, demands my life for my all. So we see its beauty. We see God's trustworthiness. And it fills us with understanding. And these things give us freedom. We see that God is love. All of his actions in history, in scripture, in our lives, flow from this love. He never says anything to us except I love you in everything he does. All of his commandments, the Ten Commandments of Sinai and everything else, flow from his love. The Sermon on the Mount flows from his love. Everything he commands in scripture is to enable us to know and to live and to share this love displayed on the cross. So that we can have it. It's that understanding that enables true obedience. As we begin to think through why is this love good? Why is it important? Why does it give life? As we meditate upon the cross, we begin to understand why God does what he does. And as we begin to understand why he does what he does, our minds are transformed. They're renewed. And seeing his good and pleasing and perfect will, we can walk along with him and become partners with him and have communion with him. King David said this about meditating on God's law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. Was David memorizing the commands of the law? No. He was thinking about them. Why? Why did you command these commands? Why did Jesus die on the cross? The more you think about it and meditate upon it, you will understand who God is and how he wants you to live. As we think about the cross, we gain wisdom to understand all of God's ways. And so we become truly free to obey him. So through the cross then, God says to us, you know I'm trustworthy. You see my purposes are good and beautiful. and You understand my ways. Now you are not my slave. Put Sinai out of your mind and look to Jesus. I have put a ring on your finger. I've wrapped my robe around you. I've set a feast before you. You are not my slave. You are my child. Will you obey me freely? Will you enter into this love and live according to it? Will you order your life around it? Then you will be co-heirs with Christ, full of the riches of the son's inheritance. Walk in love, and you will live in God. You'll come to know him even as he knows you. Just one more application. Are there areas in your life where your obedience, God would say to you this morning, are there areas in your life where your obedience to me comes from something other than freedom? If we think again about return of the prodigal son, the son comes back from his pigsty. He offers his father his service. He kneels down before him. I'll be a servant in your household. Why? You know this story. I don't need to tell it again, right? So why is he groveling before his father? Why? Out of fear? That he doesn't want to return to his poverty? And it's a famine? Is it out of guilt for his wasted life. Is it out of shame for the, his humiliation before all these people. Is it to repay his father's generosity? Is it in thankfulness for his father's mercy? None of these is what the father wants. He doesn't want a servant. He doesn't want someone who has to obey him. He wants his son back. So he puts his ring on his finger and his robe around it. He lifts him up. And restores his sonship and gives him freedom. And that's what we find throughout the New Testament. There, There is this opposition between law and grace throughout the New Testament. But that doesn't mean an opposition between obe- obedience and just doing what you like. It's an opposition between the obedience of slaves that comes from fear and pride, selfish gain, blind duty, weary habit, misguided, understanding, and the obedience of sons that comes from freedom and desire, and understanding. In the prodigal son, the older son was also a slave because he obeyed out of mere duty. And he was robbed of his inheritance by himself. And we find the same things not just in the parables, but to real people in Jesus' ministry. The rich young ruler, why did he obey God? The Pharisees, why did they obey God? The scribes, why did they obey God? All for bad reasons, in Paul's letter, think of the Galatians. Why, what were they being tempted to obey God in a different way with? By fear. The Colossians were tempted to make up rules about food and what well, things you can't touch and, well, that's funny. Why? Ignorance. The question isn't, are we under law or grace? Do we obey Him or do we just do what we want? The question is, do we obey Him out of servanthood or out of sonship? Do we obey Him because we're free? In love to, as he wants us to. Or do we obey him because we are compelled to by something other than love? So let the Lord speak to your heart this morning. He says, are there areas in your life where your obedience to me comes from something other than sonship, freedom? From fear? If you don't do what he says, he'll punish you. Or you'll fall back into things from your past that were bad for you? Or that things will go terribly wrong if you don't get it just right? Or you don't try hard enough? Are you obeying him from shame? Because of what people might think of you? Because of religious propriety? To make amends for things you've done in the past? That's not the obedience God wants. Are you obeying him out of pride because it makes you feel better than the next person? From conformity, because you want to be respectable. Because this is who you've always been and it's part of your human identity. Because everyone else you know and look up to lives that way. Because your parents told you to. Because you grew up in their faith. That's not the obedience God wants. Are you, are you obeying him to repay him for what he's done for you? You know, even gratitude, even gratitude for the cross is not enough on its own to drive true obedience. It invites us in, but it won't keep us going. Because over time, like with the Israelites, it hardens into something. It fossilizes. It becomes a duty based on something that, a debt you incurred a long time ago. All of those things, if we obey them for those reasons, we become more like Israel before Sinai. It's, it's not the obedience of sons. In the end, it will sour. It will create rebellion in you. Hardness of heart. It will make you allergic to God's presence. And if you pursue in obeying God out of that servanthood, that slave attitude, in danger of becoming like that demon in our story, in our passage this morning, compelled but hating, that's not the obedience God wants. He calls us to an obedience that gushes forth like a spring, like the water from the rock but welling up from the foot of the cross bringing life wherever it flows. So, why are you obeying God? As we finish and as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to that examination. It's probably not the work of a few minutes, to be honest. But what are the areas of your life where you're obeying God like a servant, not a son? You could tell them because you become slightly allergic to him in those areas. <laughs> instead of thrilling to his presence, you'd be like, oh, not again. Come to Jesus, who is the word of God. Hear him again. Be filled again with his grace. Let the Son of God speak and hear the Father's loving word to you. Let him blow away the clouds of Sinai, the clouds of fear. Let him silence the rumbles of judgment. Let him shield you from the consuming fire of God's holiness and let him lead you freely into the life-giving presence of the love of God. Amen.